welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And today we are joined by a special guest. Lee, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm uh, Lee Allen Howard, and I'm a horror writer, and I live in uh, western New York State, and I read and I write horror, edit horror, and I also love to watch movies. And Lee is joining us today to talk about the 2012 Jane Lynch film Chained, starring Vincent D'Onofrio and uh, Eamon Farron playing a, a duo of men, one of which has a long history as a serial killer and one who has to decide if he will be a protege or be an escapee. So I didn't know anything about this movie when we first uh, started talking. And, and obviously you interacted more with Zach in, in this process as I've been dealing with the ending of a semester working on my PhD. So I found this incredibly interesting to watch and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. I I'd actually never heard of it. And to be honest, I have never really been a fan of Vincent D'Onofrio, but this movie, I think, has changed my mind. Uh, he did a really good job, and I I really liked it. I usually don't like the really realistic horror of, like, this boy has been kidnapped and forced to be, you know, this, this guy's protege slash slave. And this one was good because, like I said, it has much more dimension than what the trailer <laughs> uh, led you to believe. And I like that in a in any kind of media. So I, I would like to ask, um, what was your original experience with this movie, Lee? Like, what? why did you end up choosing this one for discussion today? I had just written a review of it for Horror Oasis, and I can give you the link to that. But it's something that I had, you know, just written about, and it's one that I don't think a whole lot of people know about. So I would, you know, instead of rehashing something that every everybody's seen and everybody's talked about, I wanted to pick something that would show something new to readers, listeners. I'm t I'm used to talking about readers. <laughs> For sure. It's, uh, it's definitely interesting. I, I guess that this is one of those things where people can come from so many perspectives in this type of movie specifically because I think that it plays to a lot of very realistic fears that people had. This, this idea that someone could so easily be picked up taken to this rural area and then, you know, quietly disposed of is, has always been uh, terrifying. Even to me as someone who grew up in the middle of nowhere with not people around. So <laughs> I thought that it was sort of interesting to be like, oh yeah, uh, his house kind of looks similar in landscape to, to what my house looks like. That's discomforting. <laughs> yeah. In the um, beginning where I, I don't really know where the, the movie is set. I think it was filmed. I believe it was filmed in Canada, but it seemed more like um, the Midwest. In fact, you know, when Bob, the taxi driver took them out of the city, you know, off of the highway and into the middle of nowhere, you know, there's a lot of cornfields out there. And that reminds me of where I grew up in the state of Indiana. <laughs> You know, where you just had miles and miles of road intersected that, you know, intersected like a checkerboard just 
you know, miles of corn. Yeah, so this this idea that it is uh, in this remote location that is largely surrounded by cornfield obviously gives you the sense of isolation, which I think is, one, a, a fear that a lot of people have, but also it's sort of supposed to be reflective of uh, Rabbit or uh, Tim, as his actual name is, just in the fact that not only is he isolated by being trapped within the house, chained as he is, but also this this sense of even the outside world is sort of isolating for him. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the, the layers of outside he goes, he's still sort of stuck. There's, um, uh, a number of scenes where, you know, I, I, there was some movie, it's pretty old now, but you know, their tagline wasn't in space. No one can hear you scream. Well, space, Alien. space is not the only place where no one can hear you scream. <laughs> they cannot hear you scream in a cornfield. They cannot hear you scream, you know, in the basement in, uh, you know, this house where there, he has no neighbors. So it's, and in fact, he, you know, when the kid was trying to escape, um, Bob, the, uh, serial killer encouraged him go ahead and scream let it out get it out you know and he screamed and and there's no one no one to hear you yeah and from a filming point of view i thought it was really interesting how a lot of the shots were like really closed in especially in bob's house it was really dark and cramped and then you did get these shots of outside where you know that he wasn't safe either. And it was it was weird to get that kind of like juxtaposition and contrast between the two. But he was still in danger in either in, in either setting. And even uh, they also do the, the shots within the cab that are really claustrophobic as well. So it's really, it's just like really nice to get that contrast. And then at the very end, you know, kind of jumping around here within his biological father's house. It's really modern, open in that house, and you kind of have this this brighter tone going on. But it's still like even there, he's not safe because it's revealed that oh, his his father was also abusive. So it's it's this like overarching danger, especially centered around male relationships in Rabbit's life. And you mentioned you mentioned the use of just light. It, it's interesting to me, at least, that it starts off largely during the day most of the scenes that we see of the outside it's it's light out but as the film progresses it feels like it's getting later and later in the evening with each successive outside shot until rabbit says that he he wants to go hunting which is just a you know a ploy for for him to to get out of the house and then it's nighttime it's like people are leaving uh and that's the first time that we actually see him in any form outside at night uh we do see bob i think in one in one scene before then when it's uh night as well but it almost feels like for for rabbit this is over the course of one long day and you know with all the inside scenes you have no idea what time of day it is because all the windows are covered um you know he can't get out uh it's always and it's dingy it's dark it's bleak i mean even the outside shots are are bleak but you know inside you know the house is just dreary and depressing it, it reminds me a lot of saw in the same way that like it it sort of 
shelters them even further because there's no way you can sort of see what's going on outside. I think that that's, that's sort of a trick that they use that also enhances the sensation of hopelessness. It's great. It, it transfers that sort of fear of isolation onto the audience because we don't get to see the outside either because they don't get to see it. Yeah, I think that that translates well to like Rabbit's kind of like mental state throughout the movie because he is captured and kept from such a young age that you get this impression he, he's become somewhat oppressed and he has it in his in his mind that there's no way I could ever escape like even if I came up with a really good plan and that I think kind of communicates through what you were mentioning Matt with windowless it's kind of like this hopelessness that is also internal and he does express a few times like when he's supposed to be killing Angie you know she says oh well, we, can, we can escape and he just he just goes no we can't another thing since I did bring up the name of rabbit he does remain nameless until the very end of the movie also do they ever say bob's name now i i can't i can't remember i feel like there is this kind of like anonymous nature to both main characters and lee i was kind of wondering what your take on this would be as a writer i like naming my characters and it's it's a big part of revealing who who they are in my last novel the bedwetter you know the main character is is named russell pisarek and pisarek is a, a polish name but you know with his particular problem it's something that he had to deal with because he got teased in school if you leave a character unnamed it kind of gives them you know an, an everyman type of identity and this is something that movie another movie i watched recently antichrist by Lars von Trier. Trier? Yes. And the two main characters in that movie are never named. It's she and he. It worked because there weren't a lot of other characters in the movie, so you always knew who they were referring to. They they were either talking to each other or, or whatnot, but... It's a decision I don't think, you know, that anybody could make lightly. Yeah. I, sure. I always go back to Cormac McCarthy's The Road. The the boy and his father are never named. And that I, I think is is to make you empathize with those characters more. And of course I think that with the film medium, I think it's a little easier to get away with this because you have actual like a unquestionable visage of what what the character is, and you can kind of get more of their identity from their appearance on the screen rather than in writing. But do we think that them receiving names, I like I, my impression is that I think it would have been more effective if they had remained remain nameless. What do you guys think? The name uh, Rabbit, I think, is, is relevant to the character. I think that that's a choice that reflects Jane Lynch's desire to show this character that largely wants to remain pure as, as rabbits are oddly a symbol of purity. He's also kind of like his pet. That too. Kind of like his pet, you know, something that's kept chained, that's kept chained, um, that's, um, you know, stays in the house, uh, serves him. They conspicuously keep Bob's last name hidden, though, because they can't pull off, you know, the very final scene without keeping it hidden. So we, you know, we know who Bob is. We never knew, know who, probably Tim's name was mentioned early on, but I just didn't, you know, think much of it until his father, you know, played by Jake Weber, you know, calls him by name in, in the final scene. They seem to be more nameless than all the victims that Bob has killed over the years. 
you know, because they play this kind of a card game with um, the women's driver's life. And, yeah. you know, he'll tell them the name, you know, the full name, Elizabeth, you know, whatever. And then they have to, you know, come up with facts about them, their birth date, you know, their their weight, their height, their, uh, you know, whether they're an organ donor. Um, so those characters, the ones that are lost, that we only ever see screaming or bleeding, get more of an identity than the main characters do. Yeah, I mean, especially Angie at the at the end. He says her name like several times. Like there is a repetition. And I think that that goes along with this idea of naming the victims is sort of a reverse of the typical serial killer trope, which is in newspaper articles, they're actually writing about the, the victims' names and such. Whereas in, you know, the version of the Zodiac movie, it was just the Zodiac's ninth victim or whatever like they they take on this quality of belonging to the actual person that murdered them rather than being individuals on their own and and i think it's a really typical thing that serial killers like at least in in media that we get serial killers kind of dehumanizing their victims and we even see that to some extent with bob and even him calling tim rabbit is somewhat dehumanizing at first, but then it kind of becomes like a term of endearment. It's because as you mentioned, he teaches him human anatomy and that kind of becomes like this bonding activity between them and they start developing more of a relationship. Rabbit never, uh, you know, Tim, he had a father that he, you know, he loved and looked up to and wanted to get back with. But let's talk about family values for a few minutes. You know, Bob is certainly not somebody who would make a good father, but he was attempting, I think, in the film to do so. Because like one of the early scenes, you know, when uh, Rabbit was young, played by Evan Bird, who I think is a great little uh, actor. I think he's about 21 now, but he also played in the um, Canadian television show The Killing, which I really enjoyed, crime show. Um, but, you know, he had 10 seconds to get to the door, and he made it. And so, you know, Bob comes in hauling this, you know, woman along who's screaming, and he takes a moment to praise Rabbit for, you know, that was better. You did a better job at this. So it's kind of, it's, it's really kind of sick, but he was maybe giving the type of praise and encouragement that he did not get when he was young from his, his father. Um, mm -hmm. And there are other times when, you know, he's concerned about his education. You know, if, you know, if you don't have an education, if you don't learn things, then, then, then you're fucked, you know life will screw you over and, and you're nobody and everything like that. One of my favorite quotes in the movie, which I think I may make this a new motto, is when the kid, you know, tried to escape, Bob didn't, you know, cut him down for it. He told him, go ahead and scream, yell, try your hardest to escape and everything. But he says, and the kid wants to give up, but Bob says, don't be a quitter. And so it's just like these little things, you know, that he did. And he tried to, you know, introduce him to dating, you know, from a serial killer's perspective. Uh, not healthy, but, uh, you know, he was doing all these things. Took him out, you know, got brought somebody home for him. And they get into this argument, you know, you're, you're not my father. And he says, it wasn't that. He, Bob says, don't tell me we're not family. You know, mm -hmm. and of course that's going to show up 
in the final scene, but, you know, they were kind of a family. It's always interesting to see these films where they sort of play to the, the relationship dynamic, especially with serial killers. I think they always try to justify serial killers with having this, like, traumatic childhood background that sort of led to that, which I think, like, Ed Kemp uh, in in California, who also had this purportedly, like, terrible relationship with, with his mother specifically and his father leaving them, and so then he, he hated his mother, who was the abusive one. In this, it's weird to see him be a serial killer because his father was terrible. And that was one of the things that I, I, I was thinking about with this. And I had this question for, for you, Lee, as well as a as a, a, a writer. What is, do you think, the importance of giving sort of pathos to these villainous characters? If you don't humanize them in some way, I mean, they can be, you know, 95% awful, but they need to have some scrap of humanity or you really can't relate to them. You know, if, if they're just a cardboard you know, guy with a knife, which there are plenty of movies out there that are still successful, even though they resort to that. Um, I think it makes them more interesting and more watchable. And, you know, Jennifer Lynch, um, she didn't want to take on this project because she didn't want to create some kind of a torture porn film. But, right. you know, I think what she added to it, I mean, there, there were definitely some difficult, violent scenes in the movie but i think how she humanized bob by you know he had a system of rules he he wanted to raise his son in a particular way or somebody that he you know saw as his son in a particular way i'll jump in here i think that as you say it, it humanizes him to have some kind of pathos pathos to him but i think it also helps us relate to him more in a scary kind of way i think we've talked about this before on a previous episode that i'm not really recalling but it's almost scarier when you can relate to the villain because it kind of makes you reflect on your own humanity and your own potential monstrosity inside you what would it take for me to become Bob. Uh, it takes it from a level of just being, you know, wow, this is really gross. Wow, you know, he's really awful. To wow, I see some of myself in him. This makes me really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because it's hard to relate to Rabbit in this. They don't give him any sort of quality that you can sort of relate to other than the speculative, which is how would I react in this situation? Mm -hmm. uh, so they, they, they make... They make him almost, like you said, a pet, sort of animalizing, dehumanizing, whereas throughout the movie, they make Bob more and more personable. I think that as a character, Tim is like pretty relatable in the very beginning before he has been kidnapped. Like you, you can empathize for him pretty deeply given the situation. Like, oh yes, that is that is a scary situation that no one really wants to be in. But then when they do like the time skip and he is suddenly a young man, then you suddenly have this, this absence of empathy for him because he because we haven't lived the life that he has. We haven't <laughs> grown up in chains, only seeing the, the inside of the same house day to day. So he does become automatically less relatable. But then as 
he kind of gets, he hatches this escape plan and actually does succeed in it, uh, he becomes more relatable again at the end. And although he is kind of, I guess, the the protagonist, uh, if there is one of this movie, it is Bob who is, you get more screen time with relating to Bob than to Tim. It's interesting to take that idea of like family value as well. And then also the end of the movie is Tim killing his real father in, in a mm-hmm. fight because his real father is abusive to his wife. That idea that the new wife immediately is just like, just get out of here. It's fine. He's dead. (laughs) Gonna call the police and say somebody like there's a very detached sense of a relationship between the two of them. Like it's it's interesting to me to see her almost become loyal more loyal to Tim than she was to her husband in in just a moment's notice but she was still concerned for her son she also got a terrible uh revelation there and 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 so did Tim and so did you know we as viewers although it can be hard to miss you know Tim produced this letter that was given that was addressed to Bob and On that letter, he found out, you know, that Bob's last name is, I think it's Fiddler. And that's Tim's last name. And it turns out that Bob and Tim's father are actually brothers. And that, you know, the father has paid his brother to take the kid and the the first wife off of his hands because he wants to start life over again. And um, so, you know, they really are family. Makes you wonder, too, if then he was supposed to kill Tim, if the intention uh, I was think for he him was. to do it. And he just didn't, he couldn't do it. Which then puts Bob in the uncomfortable position of also having to care for this child that doesn't out- belong to him, but hide the fact that this child is still alive from his brother. Yeah, I think that he was supposed to kill Tim because of the way that um, Tim's father looks so surprised to see him in the end. Like, he, he never would have thought that that would happen because he, he said, you know, get rid of him. If, if he had said, it's okay if you keep him as like a pet or something, then you might expect that this might happen. <laughs> the, the events of this movie might happen. So I, I, I truly think that that is part of it. But yeah, it, I think abusive fathers are so central uh, to the themes of this movie because you know in, in, in other media, we see, uh, we, we often see the chain of abuse from generation to generation. Oh, my dad beat me. So like, I have to beat you now. And then you're going to beat your son. And, and it's it's this chain that we see so often in uh, in TV and in in film. And I feel like with Rabbit killing his father and killing his uncle, who they both had the abusive father, he's kind of breaking from that chain, and he he's saying, "I'm ending this cycle." Is he, or because he kills two people, he's sort of relinking himself to Bob's legacy? No, because he, but he he rejects. Bob's kind of like, I don't know, rules. Oh, that's hard. Because see, I think the opposite, especially because what you hear at the end credits, you hear the footsteps, you hear him opening the fridge to get a like a bottle of beer, which we see Bob drink, like happens several times throughout the movie. And then he opens it and he sits in Bob's chair. And it's almost like he's now fitting himself into who Bob was. That's the big thing with open-ended movies. <laughs> yeah. With and and if and you just really kind of made sense of that for me because 
um, when I rewatched the movie last night, you know, the credits were rolling and then I, I heard what was going on in the background. There was no video for it, just the credits. And I could hear what was going on. And right before the, you know, the very end of the credits, the last thing that you hear is the garage door closing. So it's like he has done everything that Bob used to do when he came home from work. You know, I think Rabbit was, mm-hmm. was pretty, um, steady in his determination not to become like Bob, you know, through the whole movie. He he didn't want to pick a girl. He didn't want to, you know, do it Bob's way. He didn't want to kill her um, and, you know, wanted her to escape and actually, you know, kill Bob to let Angie go free. But then, you know, when he faces his own father, then he ends up becoming a killer, not of women, but of father figures. Oh, that's that is an interesting point. So even though he's rejected Bob's ways, he still ends up being a killer. And there's um, no hesitation in the second one, especially. There's a scuffle in the when he's fighting with Bob, but when he kills his dad, it's it's very little conflict. It's he sees well, the abuse that his mom suffers, and then it's like done. Well, he, I mean, yeah, he he was wasn't he like strangling his wife though? Yeah. So he was kind of saving her in that it was it i i feel like it was somewhat self-defense but right oh yeah no no jury in the world (laughs) well (laughs) but i mean him kind of filling i i interpreted the end as like he went back to the house because that's all he knows not necessarily to fill bob's place yeah i i'm not so sure you know that he was stepping into bob you know i've gotten rid of bob now i'm taking over you know him it's kind of like, I've escaped that, and I have no one left to go back to, you know, his his mm-hmm. father, um, that he doesn't have anything left. So it's like, what does what does he know? It's the only, yeah. it's mm-hmm. all that he's done for the last, you know, whatever it is, 10 years or something since he was, you know, abducted as a nine-year-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he kind of falls yeah. into it, you know, by pattern, by rote, because he, he yeah. that's all he has left. It brings a whole nother layer to the, the meaning of the word change because it's like he's chained to the house still the subject matter is very dark and you know they i don't they don't spend a whole lot of time on you know the lurid bloody aspects of it i mean they they show enough but i you know it's i think they showed enough to get the point across and it wasn't like uh, over the top but you know the film was you know critics didn't like it. You know, a lot of them said that it was uh, one guy, Tim Roby, called it a lurid disgrace. You know, they usually praised D'Onofrio's and Farron's performances. And that was um, Eamon Farron's, I believe that was his debut. And I think that he did a good job. And uh, Zach, you said about, you know, not really liking Vincent D'Onofrio. I don't, I don't either. I like, I don't like watching him, but I can't say that he's not a good actor. He, he's a good actor. Mm-hmm. He's a great actor. Um, if you've seen him in... Uh, the cell that you know he played a uh, disturbed character you know very well great performance um i mean i think he did okay in men in black yeah <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a different <laughs> since we're kind of on different the subject of different types of horror anyways um i would like to know what type of what types or type of horror do you tend to enjoy the most like for example, like paranormal or like realistic, like here or like camp gore, thriller. My taste in horror fiction is different from my taste in horror 
uh, cinema. There's a lot of horror cinema that I won't watch because, frankly, I think it's just stupid and insulting and poorly done. You know, like slasher movies, you know, I, I could care less about, you know, Friday the 13th. Uh, you know, one of the first horror movies, modern horror movies that I saw was John Carpenter's Halloween. And that has a special place in my heart. But with horror, I mean, there's, there's like a spectrum of, of genres that, you know, moves from, uh, science fiction, fantasy into horror and then into, um, crime and then into mystery and, you know, on down that line. And, and I'm more like, I'm in horror, but I'm, kind of also in the crime and mystery side of it. So mm-hmm. I like to mix genres, you know, just besides straight horror, a lot of my stuff is um, um, dark crime or supernatural crime, you know, mi- mixing uh, the supernatural or horrific elements with uh, crime and um, mm-hmm. psychological thrillers mixed with horror. I'm just uh, wrote the end about two weeks ago on novel number seven, which is a horror uh, mystery, my first mystery that I've written. So, you know, that's kind of where I stand on things with um, genre and horror. Interesting. That's that's kind of like what my origin in horror really was, because my, my parents are not horror people in the classic sense. Like they, they like watching crime uh, films. And actually, I think the first like the first crime kind of horror movie that I saw was actually pretty similar to this in a way that there was like a serial killer that was a taxi driver. And that's a movie called The Bone Collector. And I don't know mm-hmm. if either of you have, have seen that. But and, and I just since since when I think horror like in in film I usually think of like I feel like most people think of slashers and that's why so many people say I'm not really into horror but it can be things like this it can be things that are much more relatable and plausible uh in in any kind of realm of of the arts so yeah I I kind of relate to you in that same way and you know we do we do do slasher movies on here you know we've done Evil Dead which I guess is kind of pseudo slasher slash paranormal um we've done Halloween. Halloween, uh, of course. Yeah, uh, Black Christmas. Gonna, yeah, that's also slasher, and I I tend not to enjoy those as much. Like you can go back and listen to our old episodes, and you can tell that I'm not as impassioned about those particular films. Um, I'm much more of the the paranormal side of things, and I I like when things are a little like mysterious and demonic, and you know that kind of thing. And I'm just trying to get Zach to enjoy the movie. <laughs> no, it's good. It's, it's so good. Cause I grew up, I grew up in the camp. Like my my parents weren't really. I my mom's not a horror person, but my dad was always a horror person so i remember watching jaws at like four years old but then even before that like you know um them or arachnophobia and and even so far as to say when my sister made me watch halloween when i was seven and my sister is nine years older or nine seven years older than i am uh so her watching halloween and making me watch halloween was a very different experience (laughs) Um, and so in that, I, I, I always, like, gravitated more towards the campier horror movies, which is why I think that the this podcast with between Zach and I has always been interesting, because he's a little bit more in the, the, the nouveau horror movie oh. camp, and I'm in the, like, <laughs> old school, we need to watch the 1950s, you know, uh, The Claw or some dumb movie. <laughs> 
Lee, would would you like to see um, one of your novels adapted? Oh, absolutely. What director would you pick? <laughs> oh, good goodness, I I I don't know about that. Um, let me uh, an example. Like, I don't know if have you ever read either of you ever read Cormac McCarthy's Child of God? Yeah. Yeah, about a, uh, you know, a killer and very gritty. Um, you know, the book, of course, McCarthy is very well done. He's, he's one of my favorites. James Franco made a movie of it. I know it's in the last 10 years, maybe in the last six years. And Child of God, Joyce Carol Oates, Zombie, Jim Thompson's The Killer Inside Me, they were inspirations for my, uh, novel, The Bedwetter. Uh, journal of a budding psychopath and i would love to see that one made into a movie i think it's a fascinating character uh i got the idea i think it was around christmas time i just remembered this kid that i used to go to high school with and we didn't know each other very well and he had this really long hair and one day he came in and his head was like totally buzzed and i said wow you really got a haircut. And when I said that, he got extremely upset. I mean, just, you know, he was shaking. He was, he got really got upset. And I found out from somebody else, he didn't tell me this, but I found out from somebody else that whenever he wet the bed, his parents would shave his head. Wow. So whenever he came to school, if his head was shaved, everybody knew what happened to him. So this idea would not leave me. And... You know, I created this um, idea of a this kid that, you know, had that same problem and he grew up and now, you know, he's fetishizes, uh, you know, finding a woman that he wants to shave bald. And I don't want to go into too much more about it, but, you know, I think it's an interesting take on somebody that was raised wrong, you know, just like Bob and Rabbit. Mm-hmm. Also another one, Death Perception, about the um, guy that uh, can discern the cause of death of the people that he cremates, Supernatural Crime. I think that would make a good good movie, too. Well, here's hoping. <laughs> we, we, would, we would love to say that uh, we had someone who, <laughs> a horror writer who had his movie adapted on our podcast. <laughs> so I guess my next question for you, Lee, is as a writer, what elements of this story stand out to you the most? Well, you know, I'm getting up there in years now, uh, looking forward to retirement. But, you know, for most of my life, I've been dealing with, with, you know, trying to get over um, the way that I was raised and, you know, the struggles that I've had all my life being uh, gay and being, you know, raised by who I was raised by and their beliefs. And so I'm always attracted to dysfunctional characters. <laughs> I like to read about them. I like to write about them. Um, so I, I like the way they portrayed both uh, Bob and Rabbit. And, um, and of course, I just like, I just like dark stuff. I like, you know, horror. I like crime. Things like that. So you you take an interesting character, and you take some crime, you take some horror, um, you take some um, you know perversion, and kind of like mix it all together and make it thoughtful. It's just something that I, I really you know it's this isn't a movie that I want to tell everybody about, but it's one that I really in, enjoyed. It's um, mm-hmm. it's not you know it's not like a 
it's no blockbuster, you know, but it's it really struck me the first time I watched it, and I enjoy it every time I've watched it since, and I've watched it probably about five times now. Mm-hmm. So I guess th- those are the elements, you know, of the, taking the the dark stuff and mixing it in with um, characters that have some kind of redeeming feature about them and being true to human nature, even if it's screwed up human nature. You know, I, I can appreciate that. So I guess we could we could wrap it up. I, I do want to open this up and give you some opportunity to, to plug yourself because as, as I've mentioned, I have read Desperate Spirits and I am planning on reading a few other of your novels, uh, especially that, what was it, Death Perception? That sounded very, very interesting. Uh, and yeah, so if you want to like give like your Twitter handle or um, like any Instagram website, whatever. All right. Uh, yeah, my website, which is um, it's going to get a facelift here in a week or two. Uh, it's at https colon slash slash leeallenhoward.com and that's a-l-l-e-n my all my books are on my main page so i've got them listed there there's a couple short collections with a couple you know a few short stories in them like desperate spirits there were you know that was a duo of two stories uh, featuring the same protagonist and like i talked about death perception that was actually my thesis novel i got a uh, master in uh, writing popular fiction, genre fiction, from Seton Hill University when I lived uh, uh, near Pittsburgh. And that was my thesis novel. So it's out there, Death Perception. The latest one after that is The Bedwetter, and I talked about that. And that's the one that's um, it's really kind of avant-garde a little bit, written like a journal. Interesting character, but it's kind of dark and twisted, and there's a uh, trigger warning on the page for that. And uh, I'm trying to place novel number six, which I call Dead Cemetery. It's a um, gay romance horror. (laughs) I like to mix my genres. Um, (laughs) And working, editing now on novel number seven, The Horror Mystery. There's a contact page on my site that you can get all my uh, social links from. But, you know, I'm mostly on Twitter, and that's at Lee Allen Howard. So you can find me there and, you know, friend me or or follow me. I'll follow you back. It's been great talking to you two. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on here with us. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's great to get the perspective of someone who, who thinks and creates horror I mean, we think about horror in this way all the time because we're we're all we're always you know consuming the the media, uh, but you you create out of this too, and that is so admirable <laughs> from our perspective. Thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt, and this is Zach, and this is Lee. <laughs>